San Francisco Experience podcast. Brought to you by Jim Herlihy. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley, California perspective for a global audience, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 20, Episode 1, Guaranteeing Bank Deposits. Talking with Professor Anat Admati of the Stanford Graduate School of Business. On March 10th, Silicon Valley Bank collapsed, followed quickly by Signature Bank. First Republic Bank came under threat, but avoided failure for the time being. All three banks had a high proportion in the 90% range of uninsured deposits. FDIC insurance caps coverage at $250,000. But within several days, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen announced that all deposits for Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank would be guaranteed. Our guest today is Anat Admati, the George G.C. Parker Chair, Professor of Finance and Economics at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Anat, what was your reaction to Secretary Yellen's plan to expand deposit insurance to Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank? Well, my reaction was, here we go again. Because this is basically what they did in the financial crisis. Entering the financial crisis of 2007 to 2009, so when the height of it was September, started in September 2008, but it started earlier, they increased deposit insurance from, at the time, 100000 to 250000 And then for a period of time that I think lasted till about 2012, it was infinite for everybody. As long as you didn't get interest, and interest rates were zero anyway. So mm-hmm. if you had money in any bank account, however much you had, everything was insured by the FDIC, however much it was. And then they went back to the 250. Mm-hmm. And now here they are, essentially after saying that you're insured to 250, suddenly saying that actually, you know what, you're insured anyway to any amount. And some depositors in these banks had millions of dollars. In one case, I heard that there was a deposit of $3 billion by Circle. Now, in your book, The Banker's New Close, What's Wrong With What's Wrong With Banking and What to Do About It, which was published in 2013 to critical acclaim. And as I read it to prepare for our interview, it struck me how prescient you were in 2013. You all but predicted the Silicon Valley Bank collapse and the current banking turmoil. Tell us about your book. Well, the the story about this book, basically, is that I'm a finance professor, but I wasn't a banking expert. After the financial crisis of 2008, you know, right around after everything almost imploded and all of that, to those who were uh, are not too young right now, but I remember it, I started looking into what happened in banking, and I realized this sector is completely and utterly unhealthy. And I teamed up with a few people first from Stanford to try to correct a lot of really, oh, what would I say, wrong, flawed claims. Mm-hmm. So the reason that the title is The Banker's New Clothes is because of the analogies, the emperor has no clothes. So the story from Hans Christian Andersen, but and the meaning of The Banker's New Clothes is flawed claims, by which it's either completely false claims or misleading claims or just complete and utter myths and stories that people say. And 
you know, in the words of, of Paul Volcker, who at some point told the senator that whatever the banks are threatening when you tell them there's some rule or other, he said it's all bullshit. So that's kind of another way of saying it. It wasn't the words we used, but here he confirmed that this is what he said. He may have said BS. But anyway, there was a lot of nonsense. And so we wrote in 2010 a sort of manifesto that says, called it Fallacies, Irrelevant Facts and, and Myths in the discussion of this thing called capital regulation, specific, specific regulation we can talk about. And we went, sent it out there, and I spent a year writing op-eds, organizing petitions of academics and things like that. And I realized that I was not going to win against all the lobbyists of mm-hmm. the banks and everybody else this way. So it was basically either explaining it to the public and to all the journalists and all these politicians and anybody who wants to understand mm-hmm. or forget it, basically. I couldn't change what was going on. And I saw their reform going, becoming a mess, basically. And there's a lot to say there about Dodd-Frank Act and all the things in Basel and Euro, and all the stuff in, in various countries. Anyway, so we spent a year and a half in the bunker from summer 2011 through the middle of 2012, and it came out early 2013, mm-hmm. writing this book and a, taking a reader into the world of banking and banking regulation, teaching basic corporate finance with no jargon, mm-hmm. no math, none of that. Just starting with a mortgage and taking you into banking, into simple banking, into complicated banking and what is going on and into all these words that they use now, systemic exceptions and, you know, what exactly happened in 2007, eight, what preceded it, what we should do about it, all this stuff. So it's a big explainer. I use it for teaching at Stanford at both undergrads and MBA because it's a kind of hidden textbook, but it tries to be as cute as a textbook can be because it is not a textbook. It's written as a cheap book for the public uh-huh. to educate as many people as possible. And that's the story of this book. Now, we continued afterwards to advocate for what the book says. The book gave us more opportunities to do that. So I get to go to Davos. I get to be, you know, a bigger shot. Uh-huh. And, uh, and yeah. I I fail. And in 2016 or so, I just I got tired of saying the same thing over and over and over again. There's all kinds of, you know, profiles and interviews and things of that sort. But I only reached uh, as far as I did reach. And so I started learning lessons from it, which we might talk about at the end. But and now 10 years later, through COVID and through all this stuff that's happened, people are not paying attention to banking. We thought maybe we would refresh this book. So Mm -hmm. basically... Uh, we were in the process when all this stuff started happening that you were asking me about. We were in the process of preparing new material for a 2023 edition of this book. And now we're scrambling to incorporate these latest events that with the book completely, the new material was really saying that there is a huge amount of risk from interest rate increases and look at Credit Suisse teetering and then bam, all this stuff started happening. You mentioned that March 10th, which of course was the day that Silicon Valley Bank collapsed. You were actually in the process of writing this update and yeah, finalizing. And, the finalizing. Yeah. <laughs> and so you've added three additional chapters to the original text, yep. which I have to tell you, it's a very readable, understandable book. You couch it in layman's terms. You're absolutely right. There's no, it doesn't read like a finance textbook. It reads very understandably. So tell us about those three chapters that you're now in the process of finalizing as we speak 
to update the book. And when will the second edition of this book come out? That includes it, the... It's the third edition, yeah, because there's th- a paperback edition with the, a year later that we just wrote a preface for and republished in paperback in 2014, exactly a year later. And now it's going to be, you know, probably the racing so that it's still 2023 in the fall sometime. I'm told that it takes longer these days to produce books in print because of supply chains or whatever. But mm-hmm. anyway, so the book will remain completely relevant with all the explainers there. But with the three chapters that are added are updating it for what happened in the last decade, including COVID. So the, the first chapter is, we just decided to call it Too Fragile Still, which is the theme of the book is why the system is so fragile. Uh, not always visibly, but you know when it implodes, it shows you that it's so fragile. Mm-hmm. And our claim is that it doesn't have to be so fragile. It just wants to be the people in it want it to be because they benefit from this fragility and the second chapter which we now reconfigured after the events of march 10th and since to be called bailouts forever Mm -hmm. and the third one is is really is uh, with a question mark uh, and it really is kind of calling power structures into the picture uh, about who writes laws and who enforces laws and rules is called Above the Law. Mm-hmm. And it really is about too big to fail and about a system that's pretty much reckless and out of control. Let's come back to Silicon Valley Bank because, of course, they're the, the main culprit, if you will. Yep. They were the ones who who set this, uh, this turmoil in motion. Talk to us about the management of that bank. And in fact, Chair Powell in his press conference today when he announced the quarter point raise in, in rates, Chair Powell specifically critiqued the management of Silicon Valley Bank, saying that the bank was badly managed. Talk to us about how quickly that bank grew and how, where were the regulators in all of this as the bank was growing as fast as it was? Well, so this is the story of this bank. The bank has been around for 40 years or so, and it was the beloved bank of Silicon Valley. It was built on this notion that Silicon Valley startups and venture capitalists need a a special bank that understands them better. And it became sort of this this part of the culture here. It was a matchmaking people. It threw parties. It it was everybody's bank uh, of all these tech companies in Silicon Valley. But it it was big. It had London office, had other countries and all that. Mm -hmm. What happened to it in the last three years is it just got really bombarded with a lot of deposits. So because there was a lot of money around during COVID and there was a a slight slowdown in some of the venture capital. And so there was kind of a lot of money slushing around the place. There was crypto, of course, and all of that. But anyway, they, they had an enormous growth in the deposits and and somewhat in slower growth in, in the loans that they were making mm-hmm. in Silicon Valley. They were making venture loans. They were making standard loans. They were uh, doing all kinds of funding that is in this area and otherwise, you know, doing standard banking things. But they then, because of all this money, they just thought, okay, they'll put it in something nominally safe that the regulators view as safe, tre- you know, treasury bonds. Now, they are not the interest on deposits, they're not paying very much. No bank was paying very much in those years. Okay, mm-hmm. interest rates were still zero uh, 2020, 2021. And so they buy, they buy a lot of mortgage securities and bonds in order to make a little bit of interest on them. Mm-hmm. However, then uh, inflation fears happen, Ukraine war, all of that, 2022. As 2022 comes in, we start seeing inflation, we start seeing interest rates go up. 
And that particular set of investments that they made, more than half of it was in, more than half of their money was invested in long-term government bonds and other very long-term uh, securities. Mm-hmm. Incredibly sensitive, and we teach this in basic finance course, to changes in interest rates. Mm-hmm. Because if they, when they bought it, you know, they, if you, you paid $100, say, to get 1.5% a year, so you buy yourself a bond that pays you, say it's a 2%, just to be simple. Every six months, it pays 1%. So you pay $1,000 and it pays you, you know, 1% of that for 30 years, every six months, semi-annually. Okay, that's the bond. And at the end, it gives you back your $1,000. That's the stream of cash flows you get from that bond. Now, interest rates. So you paid 1000 and you got some, you got the interest of 2% a year or 1% semi-annually, whatever. Then a few years later, Two or three years later, whatever, interest rates are like four, four percent, five percent for for long term bonds. Now your bond is worth a lot less mm-hmm. because it's only paying one percent, but market interest rates are like four or five percent mm-hmm. for that length. So now your bond that you may have paid a thousand dollars for is now worth you know whatever nine hundred dollars, mm-hmm. eight hundred dollars. So you lost a bunch of money. Now if you have so much investment in those bonds, then the, 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 these pieces of paper that you have, these securities that you have, they're not going to default. So it's not credit risk. Mm-hmm. It's just interest rate risk. And now your assets are worth less. Now, if your deposit decide that they're a little nervous because they're unsecured, they're uninsured, and they want their money back, or for whatever reason they want their money back, now you need to come up with the cash. Mm-hmm. So what they ended up, in terms of the management, this was writing on the wall to anybody who knows anything about banking. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a plain vanilla banking risk. You have short-term liabilities, deposits that want their money anytime or need to overnight, they can withdraw their money anytime. Mm-hmm. And you have long-term assets that are not, you know, they may be liquid in the sense that there's a market for them that can convert them to cash, but at a, at a price might be different than what you paid for them. So all of a sudden you may incur losses on these assets, whether they are risky, you know, mortgage says, or when they default or they're subprime or whatever, or whether they are even government bonds. So all of a sudden they needed to, now the way they reported, they pretend that they haven't lost. So the accounting rules allow them to pretend that the thing's worth still a thousand dollars, even though it's not. And so they're marking it to market, meaning acknowledging what it's really worth would have shown right away that they have incurred a ton of losses. And when this became obvious because they sold some sh- some of these securities to in order to pay depositors, the depositors freaked out and they started this run, which in today with social media didn't take very long or didn't require lines in the bank. In the movies, had all of a sudden $42 billion get withdrawn in one day. Well, you know, it's interesting. Chair Powell in his press conference today referenced the almost unique nature of the depositors there. They were... They're largely venture capitalist. It was almost like a herd instinct. One of them gave kind of the signal that they should get. It was sending, was sending that all these companies should. And so out, out it flowed. So in that sense, in that sense, the, this deposit run was very different. This was like a 21st century deposit run to the extent that it was largely electronic and it was largely, it was concentrated among a certain industry, which proved to be very hot money. But that, that's not where the story is. So we really have to get away from this fascination with runs and panics because it was a run and a panic. But there was a completely legitimate concern with the bank's solvency. Mm-hmm. 
That's what really it was. The bank was insolvent. That is what started the run. It wasn't the other way around. Yes, in the movies, in It's a Wonderful Life, in Mary Poppins, you know, a rumor can lead to the failure of a healthy bank. Yes. That's not the case here. Not the case. The bank was bust mm-hmm. for a year. The bank was bust for a year. I think we can, we can stipulate to that fact. Where were the regulators? Why didn't the okay. regulators come in and shut it down? So they could have, and and they sort of did. So the bank is regulated by some California regulators, Mm -hmm. and it's supervised by the San Francisco Fed on behalf of the federal regulators and all of that. And the policy insurance people as well that need to, that are basically holding the bag, you know, and that had the authority to step in and close the bank, Mm -hmm. you know, on, on that Friday. Now, where were they? It's a really good question, because I'm asking where they are much more broadly than that. Mm-hmm. I mean, the book is about regulatory failure. And the book today is going to say that that failure continues. And here you see it in, you know, in this example in particular, that they knew, in fact, the, the bank itself asked for some, uh, just yesterday I read that the bank itself asked for BlackRock some consultation in January 2022. And they told them that they are at great risk from these interest rate changes. And they just ignored it. So the management of the bank clearly was not into risk management. But let me remind you, because I teach in a business school, we teach our students to maximize the stock price. Mm -hmm. So that's what the management did. So when they are ignoring risk, they're doing it for their own bonuses, for their own dividends, for their own. They're doing it for capitalistic reasons. That's why you're asking me they have regulators. Other companies don't have regulators. Why do banks have regulators? Because they have insured creditors. And because they're FDIC and other regulators, you know, and they could have impact on the rest of the system and or they can disrupt the lives of their customers. So we need to be sure they don't do that. Where were the regulators? It's a really good question. Once again, mm-hmm. what they noticed and they sent. So the, the regulators, they when they examined the banks and they obviously everybody had access to the information The depositors do, by the way, where were the depositors a year ago? Mm-hmm. Why did they keep their money there if they are uninsured? Why didn't they pull their money out earlier? That's another question to ask. Mm-hmm. Where is the market discipline on this? Because if you're going to put a billion dollars in a bank, you better check that it's okay because you're not insured. But anyway, leave the depositors now aside, but they too were careless. The regulators looked at this bank, and this is again, just like Banking 101, saw this and they told the bank for months now, giving them what's called matters requiring attention, MRAs and MRAs. IAs, matters required immediate Media attention. attention. And they warned them that they had to fix things, but the regulators had full authority, just like a policeman sees you recklessly driving in the street. Mm-hmm. They had full authority to do cease and desist and to stop their practices and to force them to stop paying dividends, to stop paying bonuses, to raise more equity before they become insolvent. Mm-hmm. Way before, because this interest rate risk has been looming. How long can you keep interest rates at zero like that? Inflation mm-hmm. started coming, interest rates came up. So the regulators completely failed and mm-hmm. utterly failed. So, I mean, they really, it is their job to watch for the, exactly these kinds of things. And it is a spectacular fail. Now, uh, Vice Chair Barr is in, charge yep. of the, is in charge of the investigation. And, yep. Chair, and Chair Powell in his press conference today made reference to that and said that it's yep. basically... Barr is in charge of that, and a report is going to be done on that. But at at the end of the day, even after they have this investigation, what kind of meaningful reform do you see coming 
out of this crisis? Because you mapped it out 10 years ago. And, well, and <laughs> since then, and since then, let's just look at little scandals that happened in well-known banks. London Way. After London Way, there were all this ringing about in the OCC and why Jamie Dimon didn't give them information about this. It was a $6 billion loss for a large bank. It wasn't systemic. The bank didn't fail. It's oh, the wasn't, that, that was the London whale. Way, that was the that whale. Was whale. Yes. yes. So we're talking about 2012 or something. It was while we were writing the book, but all the reports came after. All the investigations about how the New York Fed failed and how the OCC failed. A huge study by the Congress of this uh, event. The report came after our book. So we didn't incorporate that. And the report is scathing on the regulator. What happened? Nothing. The regulators failed spectacularly in Citigroup prior to the crisis. Then Citigroup was bailed out again and again and again. It's shocking. Mm -hmm. But let's move into the political realm here because we've talked about the regulatory realm. We're talking about the academic realm. Let's move into the political realm here. Yep. Where are the the calm voices in our political infrastructure saying this has to change? Can you send them all copies of your book? Because it seems as though... <laughs> yeah, it's funny you say that because I, after the book came out, the book was written for them. I would walk, I had some friends in Congress, in the Senate, a little bit in the House, and I would walk in with a pile of books. Yes. And I would say to my friends, Tell me who to give it to. They should I dedicate it to this staffer, to this senator. So some of them do have this book. My best friend in Senate is Senator Sherrod Brown. He's now the chair of the banking committee, and he's the best mm -hmm. on this area, the best. And at the time of the book came out, he had a proposal that was very similar to what we proposed in the book. And all it had was just more equity funding for these banks. It's mm -hmm. like obvious no-brainer, but somehow that's, that's harassing in banking. That's so crazy. At the time... You know, a, an extreme right-wing guy named David Vitter from Louisiana. They proposed this, and they didn't even need to propose Brown-Vitter, which never got discussed, because the Fed already had authority by Dodd-Frank to do it. So the Fed itself is a failed regulator, wouldn't even engage on what to do. The problem, the political problem in banking is the answer to what's wrong with banking. Mm -hmm. Politics is what's wrong with banking. It's a mix of confusion and politics, which is a toxic mix. That's really the bottom line there. You know, when Martin Wolf reviewed our book, he said at the end that it was called Why, ba Why Bankers Are Intellectually Naked, because it was about emperor's new clothes. And at the end, he said, why we failed, and he was on a committee in a commission in the UK to investigate the banking, the financial crisis. And he said, why we failed to regulate them is because the economics is so, because he gave it in this order. The bankers are so influential and the economics so poorly understood. And then he said, if you read this book, you'll understand that we failed to fix this system. Further crisis will come. Mm -hmm. And here, here we are. And here we so, are. Exactly. So the, 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 the bottom line is there is a symbiotic relations between politicians and bankers that really runs deep. Mm -hmm. So the, and the banks have their way of influencing the politicians and the politicians have their reasons to listen to the bankers and not to listen as much to me. Let me pose a question to you. Again, speaking in layman's terms, I think we, yeah. all, we all understand the more capital that an enterprise has, arguably, the less risk. You have is. to explain what capital is, because the beginning of the nonsense comes from the fact that 
people think of the word capital as if it's a pile of cash, like cash reserve, right. rainy day fund. That's not true. What we're talking about is similar to the down payment you put in your house to an equity investor investment in anything. It's about funding your investments with unborrowed money, with shareholders' money. Mm -hmm. And what we're proposing is that you do more. Right now, the you you were saying that the 90%, I think it's First Republic has less than 90%, uh, but you know Silicon Valley Bank had like almost 97% of their uninsured deposits. But where is their equity? Most companies in Silicon Valley fund with equity, mm -hmm. not with debt. Now, of course, banks, part of their business is to take deposits. So immediately they start with debt. But who protects that debt? Why don't the shareholders protect this debt? When banks were partnerships back in the 19th century, before we had all these different safety nets for them, there were private partnerships and they had 50% equity and 50% deposits. And the banker was personally liable, no unlimited, li no limited liability for the deposits. So they had to, so it's as if Jamie Dimon would have to insure the deposits out of his own pocket, mm -hmm. wouldn't be able to walk away if the bank couldn't pay depositors. Mm -hmm. Right now, we have to, we have, they fund with almost no equity mm -hmm. to speak of. How come this issue, the, how come the banking issue, the banking regulatory issue, just doesn't seem to grab the attention of the American public to gain political traction, except in the moments like this that we're currently living through, where there is banking turmoil, but then, you know, we seem to go it back to normal. Off. And it just yeah. dies off. The interest dies off. It dies off because, because they're always, they're pure. So in the book, we have a chapter about, you know, what to do about the situation that we can't let banks fail and nobody wants to lose when they do fail. And then we end up bailing everybody out and underwriting this whole system, which is privatizing gains, socializing, you know, losses. And what, so we, we say in that chapter, an ounce of prevention worth a pound of cure, right? Yes. So the cure is bailouts. You know, the depositors were panicked for a weekend and then by Sunday they breathed. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now they just want to do the go back about, to their business. Now these same depositors, they had the fright. They say, "I can't monitor, you know, Silicon Valley Bank. I don't have time. I got to do my innovation." Then fine. Then make sure that there's a regulator there to do that for you. Mm -hmm. Well, that's if, of course that's the. Uh, I mean, that's the million dollar question at this all, point. But Where they're were all they? anti-regulation. They all think markets solve everything. Mm -hmm. Not in banking. True in banking. Markets. Never work in banking. The bankers, the banks are born with with conflicts with society. That's how that's in their DNA. Is not some inherent fragility that we have to live with. It's a it's a, a, a fragility because they want it because the banker wants it first and foremost. Let's just come back to Silicon Valley Bank again. You mentioned yeah. at the outset that Silicon Valley Bank was a California chartered bank as opposed to a nationally chartered bank is there is that is that a potential weakness here is that perhaps no most i mean you know this is all very complicated i mean if they was national bank it would be regulated by the occ many banks have state regulators too it's a whole fragmented system of regulation that's the, the, the believe me the occ is not better than than the state regulators necessarily they're all bad Mm -hmm. Pretty much. That's not the, by being, by the way, by being state chartered in this in California, they could get loans not just from the Fed, but they could get loans from the Federal Home Bank in San Francisco. So they have other sources in Silicon Valley Bank is, is uh, sorry, First Republic Bank is also borrowing from the Federal Home Loan Bank. 
which is in San Francisco. That's again, completely invisible. The Fed is a little bit tiny more visible. But that's really what's going to happen and what's happening as we speak is at the same time that Janet Yellen announced that everybody's insured, which is what everybody paid attention to and which you wanted to talk about, she announced something else, which is why we added to the new edition of the book, literally in the last two weeks, mm -hmm. material that we thought we would have, but then we thought might be too hard on the Fed, on central banks. Central banks are very mysterious to people. They're all powerful mm -hmm. and they're greatly misunderstood. What does it mean to create money? This also has to do with the crypto debate and all of that. So what is it that, that central banks do? And how do they play a system in the private sector banks you know, by standing ready to lend to them and lend to them and lend to them. So we have a deposit insurance, which is sort of an explicit insurance. We all understand what that means. But where is the role of the Fed? Oh, the Fed is the liquidity provider. So they always use this word liquidity. In principle, if the bank is solvent, the Fed could have given it overnight loans. Mm -hmm. And the Fed does give overnight loans all the time. Right now, one of the ways First Republic survives is by borrowing a lot from the Fed. Mm -hmm. So the Fed is the source of a lot of the bailouts that we have as a sort of part of the government, really, because it is a point, it is it has special privileges from the government, for example, to print the dollar bills. It can do a lot. It has very, very deep pockets, like infinite pockets in principle. And so it can come in and lend to anybody it decides is systemic to mm -hmm. anybody at all on a regular basis to all the banks. They have a window here. They open up another window there. They were very active during COVID. They supported money market funds. They support, support, support. So they become bigger and bigger because they take on more and more space. And that is a very dangerous uh, place to be. The third edition, which will be coming out, you said, in the fall. Yeah, I hope in the fall. I don't have a date. My editor was saying to me today, first send it to me, which we're hoping to do in a week to the copy edits. And then it's like going to go through that whole process of publishing it. But it, it just adds three chapters, but it has a lot of reference. The book has half of it. So if you see the book and it's fat, half of it is footnotes because it exists on two levels. It's very readable, but they're very heavy footnotes for anybody who wants more details, more explanations, more citations, more articles. So there's any level of it you can you can do. But so we, in the new material, we also added a lot of backups and mm -hmm. explanations in the footnote. In any case, it's going to be three chapters, and it, I hope it, it, it makes it by sometime in fall. Anat, do you have some closing thoughts for our listeners? And can you please tell your editor that we want to see this book as soon as possible. <laughs> while this while this crisis and this turmoil is fresh in our memories, we want to see this book. We want to see these additional chapters as soon as possible. I know. I, I wish I wish I could make it. You know, as we right now, it's like what will happen by the time that they publish it. I hope the system doesn't continue to collapse. I mean, when we get it back from copy edits, we'll be able to maybe insert a little bit more update if anything happens. Right now, it seems like Credit Suisse. That was an, we didn't get to talk about it, but that was spectacular. You know, that was head spinning thing that just happened in the last few days mm -hmm. uh, over in Switzerland. I mean, they're basically, you know, the, it's the equivalent in this country of having J.P. Morgan Chase like buy up Citigroup. Mm -hmm. You know, a bank, 166, 167 year old bank just swallowed by its one competitor. All of them too big to fail. 
Mm-hmm. But now there's, and then there's one, as they said, you know, in one headline. Yes, I want this book to come out and I want people to pay attention to it because otherwise we're kind of, you know, we're in trouble in banking. We don't pay attention and occasionally we, 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 we say what's going on there and then they tell us go back to sleep and we do. Well, in the meantime, where can our listeners today buy a copy of your existing book and then hopefully in a couple of months time buy the third edition? So it's uh, every bookseller should have. I mean, they may have, you know, I don't know what the printing situation is, but my editor said they will print more of the 2014 edition. So it's it's very cheap. It's on Amazon. It, I don't know what it costs. I think the Kindle edition is $10 or something. And then you can learn about banking. Yeah, I'm on Twitter. So sometimes I vent on Twitter when I have time. So just Anad Mari, just one word at Twitter. I have a website that now has a tab called advocacy and some other links there and you just you look for another body at stanford but you make sure to look at my personal website not the the stanford business school profile which i never look at because i manage my own website but they do link to it and it is managed by stanford it's just a personal website and i have to update it for all my media appearances in the last two weeks you know at pbs news hour and here and there and everywhere that was asking me to to say what I think about this so people all of a sudden remember that what I said, what we said is relevant. So I hope they continue to think if it's relevant, even though I hope that it's relevant, even though I hope that the banking system is calm. It still is unhealthy, even if you, if it doesn't implode. And the, the Twitter handle, let me spell that out for our listeners. It's at A-N-A-T-A-D-M-A-T-I. Is that correct? That's right. Exactly. Okay, perfect. Well, once again, I want to thank you. Oh, and of course, the title of the book. Please give us the title of the book again so that our listeners can... It's called The Banker's New Clothes, What's Wrong with Banking and What to Do About It. And there's a picture of kind of naked guys with a mother and daughter looking at them. We're going to do a new cover, but it's going to be a variation on <laughs> on, uh, on Emperor's New Clothes. And, it, and it's not just the bankers. It's a lot of people saying a lot of wrong things. So it's policymakers, even academics, you know, regulators, politicians, some journalists <laughs> saying wrong things. So just going around in the last count after the book, came out we have a document that's posted on the book website the book has a website bankersnewclothes.com uh, sometimes it gets hacked i have to move that website away from you know private <laughs> but anyway sometimes it sends you to some pharmacy or something but uh, i hope it, it stays in any case bankersnewclothes.com we started a document called the parade continues and it's about all the wrong things we still hear and their count by now as of 2019, is 34 flawed claims, distinct flawed claims. Mm. Uh, we'll update it probably before the book comes out. So I don't know how many there'll be more that people say about some of the topics. And it just it's a barrage of nonsense. Well, listeners, you heard it directly from our, our guest today, Anat Admati. The title of the book is The Banker's New Clothes, and you can get it on Amazon.com. I commend it to your attention. You should probably read the original copy, which is available today on Amazon. And then hopefully by the end of the year, the third edition will be out with the Silicon Valley Bank updates. But commend it to your attention, both the copy that's available today and the copy that'll be coming in a few months' time. And the prefaces, the two prefaces in the chapter one are available for, for free from the publisher and from our website. So you can read the two prefaces and 
the chapter one uh, on the website, bankersnewclothes.com. Again, Anat, thank you so much for joining us today, shedding light on this this murky turmoil situation that started off here in our backyard in Silicon Valley with Silicon Valley Bank. Thank you so much for giving us the time today and look forward to having you back when the third edition comes out later this year, but encouraging listeners to go out immediately and buy the original edition. Thank you. My pleasure. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 386, as the San Francisco Experience podcast marks its third anniversary. You can listen to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, 19 platforms in total, and join our audience that spans 65 countries by subscribing. This has been the San Francisco Experience podcast with Jim Herlihy coming to you from San Francisco.